It's good to be with you this evening, and I'm glad we have the opportunity to worship and, of course, always enjoy uh, Fifth Sunday uh, question and answers. Whoever's in the booth, I, can't, I can only see the top of your head. Seth, you can take that down. That's, that's from last week. That's not mine. All right. So we have five questions this evening, and hopefully uh, time will allow us to get to all of them. We'll do our best. First question is going to come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you'd like to be opening your Bibles to that context, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, this question is a good question. It's somewhat of a common question, but I think it's good for us to be reminded from time to time And the question reads, what exactly does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And is this partaking, or excuse me, is this speaking to non-Christians who partake of the Lord's Supper? If so, what does that mean for them versus a non-Christian who does not partake of the Lord's Supper? It's a good question. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's begin reading in verse 27. And uh, we'll be able to read the passage where the question comes from, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. The scripture says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And we'll stop right there. Just reading these verses, of course, it's no wonder that we would want to know what they're talking about because the language is very serious. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about being guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, verse 27. We're talking about drinking judgment uh, to, our, to oneself. Verse number 29, and not discerning the Lord's body. So this is a very serious matter, but what does it mean? For the answer to that question, I think that you just need to go back up to the beginning of the discussion in verse number 17 and look at what's going on in the context and why the Apostle Paul is addressing this matter in the first place. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. He says, now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And then he goes on in the next few verses to remind us of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. So the problem in the church at Corinth is that when the congregation was coming together, they were coming together and they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were turning it into what we might just describe as a common meal. 
And in addition to that, they were not, uh, it was not a situation in which all of the folks were included. Some brethren were being left out of this, uh, uh, of this observance. And so these are the things that are the problems that Paul is dealing with. Now, when we get to verse 27 then, and he begins to talk about eating and partaking in an unworthy manner, what he is talking about according to the context is the idea of partaking in a way that ignores the true purpose of the Lord's Supper. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, look, if you're going to continue on making this a common meal, if you're going to continue on excluding certain of the congregation from this, then you're doing it in a way that is unworthy. It ignores the purpose, and the purpose is given to us in verse 22 to 26, and that purpose is to be a memorial. It's a communion according to chapter 10, and it is an observance in which the entire congregation together as one body observes the Lord's Supper to memorialize, to remember the death of Jesus Christ. So when he says taking in an unworthy manner, I don't think that he's talking at all to non-Christians. In fact, I would suggest to you that if a non-Christian partakes of the Lord's Supper, all they're really doing is eating a cracker and drinking a little bit of grape juice, or in our case, eating a circular piece of styrofoam that's supposed to be a cracker. Uh, But it has really no meaning, no significance at all. The significance of the meeting is to those who are Christians. But for a Christian who partakes in a way that ignores or that violates the real purpose of the Lord's Supper, which is to memorialize the death of Jesus Christ, then they, they partake of it in an unworthy manner. All right, now let's go to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 5 and verse 19 is where we're going to begin this question. This was an interesting question, one that I hadn't, I guess, thought of in quite this way before. Mark 5.19, listen to this passage, and then I'll tell you the question. Mark 5.19, here's what it says. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And verse 20 says, He departed and he began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Now, here's the question. Why did Jesus tell the demon-possessed man in Mark 5.19 to tell everyone that what had happened to him, but he forbade people on other occasions from doing the same thing? I want us to look just briefly at some of these other occasions in the book of Mark. If you want to put your bookmark in chapter 5, Mark chapter 1 Verse number 44 will be the first. Jesus cleanses a leper beginning in verse number 40. And the Bible says in verse number 44 that Jesus said to the leper, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in a deserted place, and they came to him from every direction. All right? That's Mark 1, and 45. Now look back to chapter 5, but this time go down further in the context and look at verse 43. 
Mark chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus heals, no, he doesn't heal, he uh, brings to life, he resurrects the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, and in verse 43, he says, uh, the Bible tells us, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Okay, now look at verse, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 36, chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus, beginning in verse number 31, he heals a man who um, is uh, deaf and cannot speak. And in verse number 36, it says that after he had healed him, he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well He makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And then we have one more, chapter 8, verse 26. Chapter 8, verse 26. He heals the blind man in Bethesda. And it says in verse 26, and we'll keep reading down through verse 30. Um, Actually, no, we'll just read verse 26. He sent him away to his own house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. All right, so that's a general dealing with the occasions in the book of Mark where Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Now, go back to chapter 5. What, why is it in chapter 5 that he says, go on and, and tell them? Well, I want to add a couple of more things to this, and then we'll look closer at the answer to the question. In chapter 5, we looked at the occasion uh, at the end of the chapter where Jesus raised the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, I want you to look with me at the parallel account in Matthew chapter 9 for a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Keep your bookmark in Mark. Matthew chapter 9, and beginning in verse 27. All right, so he heals the, the or he uh, raises the, the daughter in verse 25 and 26. And the Bible tells us in verse 25 and 26, or verse 26, that the report went out into all the land. And then keep reading. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. So he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him all over the country. And as they went out, verse 32, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel, but the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Now let me bring all of these things together. Do you notice verse number 34? The Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And did you also notice when we were reading the passages in Mark, in Mark chapter 1 verse 44, he instructed not to tell anyone, but in verse 45 it tells us that he did, and the result of that was that it caused such a frenzy that Jesus could no longer even enter into the city. 
So as we study the life of Jesus, and particularly in the gospel account of Mark, I believe that a good way of looking at this, one of Mark's themes is the word immediately or straightway. And it emphasizes to us the fact that Jesus knew who he was, he knew why he was here, he knew what he was here to do, and he knew where he was going, and that's the cross. And Jesus was the one who was in charge of the clock. I like to think of it as if when Jesus began his ministry, the clock began ticking, and every day, every moment, it got closer and closer to the cross, and Jesus, Jesus wasn't going to do anything that was going to make the cross happen faster than what Jesus needed it to happen. He's in control of all of this. So think about those two passages that we noted just a second ago in Matthew chapter 9 and then the beginning of Mark. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, but they did. And what did the Pharisees do? The Pharisees caused problems. He, he, raised, uh, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. In Mark chapter 1, he said, don't tell anybody, but he did. And what happened? The stir was so, the, the frenzy was so crazy that Jesus couldn't even stay in the city any longer. So the reason why I think that on all of these occasions, Jesus says, don't tell anyone is because Jesus is in control of his own situation. Jesus is keeping control of the clock. And Jesus knows that whenever these folks go on publishing it, that it's going to cause a frenzy. And that it's going to take things and it's going to push him closer to the cross. And he's trying to keep in control of all of this. But here's something else to consider. Remember that the Jews had a particular expectation of the Messiah, and their expectation was that the Messiah was going to be a physical king. And this happened on more than one occasion, whenever the crowds are stirred, and whenever people begin to view him in a frenzy, they take him, and what do they do? They try to force him to be king. They're trying to force their agenda on him. So it could be that when Jesus says, don't tell anybody, it's because there's always the danger of the crowds uh, getting out of control, of him being, uh, being forced to leave an area before he's ready to leave an area, and of the Jews trying to force him into being a king and that causing a number of other problems. Again, Jesus is in control of all of this. But what about this man in chapter 5? Well, there's one thing about this man in chapter 5 that makes him different from everybody else, and that is that he's a Gentile. And this area in which Jesus is, uh, in which Je where Jesus is at the time, is a is a Gentile area. So when Jesus heals, when he casts the demons out of this man, it's very likely that there's no danger of any Jews rushing to make him king. There's probably no danger of of uh, anyone uh, accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or trying to steal power away from Rome or coming uh, across uh, or, or coming, um, uh, getting on the bad side of the Jewish elite. And it may even be that Jesus knew that he wouldn't be teaching in this area any longer and so this particular Gentile would be his only spokesman in this area after he left. Maybe that's the reason why Jesus said, go home and tell your friends and tell everybody what great and wonderful things the Lord has done. And look at verse 20. It worked because verse 20 says that when he did that, they all 
marveled. So I know that's a lot, but I think the answer to the question is the reason why Jesus told him to do it and told the others not to is because he's a Gentile, and this is a Gentile area, and the reaction of the Gentiles to what Jesus does and who he is is different than the reaction of the Jews, and also Jesus knows that he's not going to be here in this area again, and so this man is very well going to be his only spokesman in this area, so therefore he says, go on and tell them, and he does. Staying in the gospel accounts, here's another question. The question is, why did the crowd go from shouting Hosanna at the triumphal entry of Jesus to crucify him whenever he stood before Pilate? And that, I think, is a very good question. And I'm not sure that I can give you a definite answer, but I would point something out to you. Look at Matthew chapter 21 for a moment. The Bible records for us Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, and I want, to, I want you to notice Matthew 21, verse 10 and 11. Matthew 21, 10 and 11, the Bible says that when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Now stop and ask yourself for just a moment, who made up the multitude that shouted Hosanna in verse 4 and following? You see, you've got to remember that as Jesus is traveling, there is a, a multitude or a crowd that is following him. And the Bible puts a distinction in Matthew 21, verse 10 and 11, between the multitudes who are shouting Hosanna and the people of Jerusalem who are basically saying, what in the world is going on here and who is this man? And it's the multitudes that have to answer the question for them. So what that tells me is that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry of Matthew chapter 21, that there are a number of different kinds of people represented in Matthew 21 and following as we get to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so the people that made up the multitude that said Hosanna in Matthew chapter 21, they may or they may not have made up the same group or multitude later on that said crucify him. But we know that between Matthew 21 and Jesus' crucifixion that he, he uh, had uh, some confrontations with a number of the Jewish elite. He had confrontations with the Herodians, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the scribes. He decried the situation of Jerusalem. He predicted the uh, destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. He has the chapter in Matthew 25 when he talks about the, uh, the uh, second coming of Christ, about the judgment day. He, he, he teaches a number of things which are going to infuriate the Jews of Jerusalem who do not believe in him. So that would explain, I suppose, how they could at least get to the point of saying crucify him. But again, ask yourself the question, who made up the multitude that shouted Hosanna and who made up the multitude that shouted crucify him and were some of the people, were those the same people? Maybe, maybe not, maybe a mix. It's hard to know, but it's a good question. Now here's another question that's interesting and that's important and I'll admit that there is some degree of judgment, I guess, in answering this question. The question is, and I'd invite you to be turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The question is, when we travel over a weekend and visit another congregation, should we give our contribution to that congregation or should we leave it at our home congregation or make it up when we get back or something like that? And does this change if, there's an, if we're going to be away from home for a long period of time? 
Well, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 16 with me and let's read verse 1 and 2 and notice some principles that will help to answer it. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so also uh, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, literally on the first day of every week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now, there are a number of principles that are gleaned from these two verses, and we don't have time to talk about all of them, but let me mention just a few, and these are all related, I think. Number one, there's the principle of frequency. Now, the new t- not every English translation brings this out as well, maybe as some others, but in verse 2, when he says, on the first day of the week, the literal meaning is on the first day of every week. That's the reason why, or at least one of the reasons why, we observe the uh, contribution every Sunday as part of our worship service because this passage teaches us that every first day of the week, the church is to give, the church is to observe the contribution as an action of worship. So there's the principle of frequency every week. But then, excuse me, In connection with that, there's the principle of prosperity, or you might even call it the principle of proportion. He says, every one of you are to lay something aside or lay by in store, as the King James Version translates it. And the literal meaning of that is that on the first day of every week, every one of you are to put something into the storehouse. It's making actual reference to what we would call a treasury. That's really the idea. Everyone is to put something into the church treasury. That's the idea of lay by and store. But then he says it's to be done as he may prosper. So here is the principle of prosperity or the principle of proportion. You see, our giving is to be done on a weekly basis in proportion to how we prosper. Now, that looks different for every person. You take $100, for example. $100 is different depending on who gives it. $100 is one thing for a person who prospers and makes $1,000, but it's something altogether different for the person who prospers and makes $10,000. But the New Testament doesn't assign necessarily an exact figure, an exact percentage like the Old Testament does. The New Testament says that we're to give and that that offering is to be of a free will offering and that offering is to be in proportion with how we prosper. So whenever we prosper and however we prosper, we give. We uh, we receive a salary or uh, money in some way and we give of that. We receive a bonus or raise and pay and our giving ought to go up because our prosperity has gone up. And so our giving is to be done in connection or in conjunction with our prosperity. Here's the third, and this is what will tie all of these together and I think help to answer this question, and that's the principle of planning, the principle of planning. Now, you think about the two things that he's already said. He said that we're to give every first day of the week and that we are to give in proportion to our prosperity. Now, what that means is that for me as an individual, there's going to be some level of planning as to what I'm going to give. I'm going to know, okay, here's my budget, here's my income, here's how I've prospered, and so the Bible tells me that I need to give every first day of the week, and so therefore I'm going to plan to take 
this amount of money and divide that up over four weeks or five if the, sun, if the month has five. There's planning involved in that. Well, think about it from the other side. There's also planning involved in the reception and in the use of those funds. You see, the congregation, your home congregation, they depend upon the contribution that comes from the members of that congregation. And the congregation plans and budgets and prepares and how those funds are going to be used. Well, if the congregation plans in how those funds are going to be used and I am to plan and how I'm going to give, what happens if I stop, if the congregation is not able to depend upon me in giving what I have planned as they have made plans to use those funds to the glory of God? You see, there's a breakdown there. So I would suggest to you that the answer to the question is that whenever we visit another congregation, well, sure, it's good, and I would say it, we ought to, to give something where we visit, but it is good and it is expedient for us to make sure that we either leave a contribution or make up that contribution whenever we return, because just like the individual has to plan in their giving, the congregation has to make a plan in knowing, having some idea as to what funds they're going to have to work with and how those funds are then going to be used. Hope that uh, answer helps. Here's our last question. This comes from one of our young people, and this, I think, is the best question of the lot. Simple but to the point. What will heaven be like? That's a great question. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And in some ways, it's impossible really to describe it because we're talking about a place that exists outside of the material world. And what the Bible will do is the Bible will take physical things, images, if you will, to try and describe heaven so that, so that we can have some idea or appreciation of what it is. Here are just some of them. The Bible tells us that heaven is the house of God. John 14, verse 1 to 3. Jesus said that uh, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, if I go, then I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is God's house. The Bible also tells us things about heaven in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. For example, the Bible tells us that in heaven, there's no death. No one dies in heaven. We'll never have to go to a funeral again. There's also no sickness in heaven. We'll never have to go to the hospital. There's no sorrow in heaven. No one will cry tears of sorrow. Uh, there's no pain in heaven. No one's going to hurt. There's no sin in heaven. There's not going to be any wickedness or anything that's wrong in heaven. But in heaven, we find a place of righteousness. We find a place of joy, and we find in heaven that it is a place of worship. Heaven is a place where we're going to be in the presence of God. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with the apostles. We're going to be with great men and women of faith like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and so many others. We're going to be able to go and be with our loved ones who have died before us. 
It's a place of reunion, and that is one of the things that makes it so sweet and one of the things that causes us to long for it, uh, long for it so, so much. So what will heaven be like? Well, it'll be heaven. It's going to be a place where we're going to be with God, and it's difficult, I think, for us to imagine really all of the wonders of that place, but we do the best we can with the information that God has given us. All right, well, those are the five questions that we have for this evening. Thank you for submitting them and giving me an opportunity to, uh, to study over them and to, to answer them. And naturally, as always, I am not infallible. Not infallible, yeah. One time I said that, and I said it wrong, and uh, the chicken deacon reminded me of that and still does sometimes. So I am, I am not infallible still have to think about it. Sometimes I make mistakes. That's what I'm trying to say. And so it's possible that in one of these questions I've not answered it correctly. And so please come and talk to me. I would welcome a discussion if you think that that's happened. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now. And, and maybe that there's someone here that has a need to respond to become a Christian. And uh, if that's you, then we stand ready and willing to help you in doing that tonight. If you're a Christian, but you'd like for the church to pray for you, to help you in some way, maybe to give you some encouragement and some struggle that you're having. Whatever your need is, come forward, let it be known while we stand and sing together.